Chapter 8 of The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Chapter 8 Thomas Campbell and George Crabbe. Mr. Campbell may be said to hold a place among modern poets, between Lord Byron and Mr. Rogers. With much of the glossy splendour, the pointed vigour and romantic interest of the one, he possesses the fastidious refinement, the classic elegance of the other. Mr. Rogers, as a writer, is too effeminate, Lord Byron too extravagant, Mr. Campbell is neither. The author of The Pleasures of Memory polishes his lines till they sparkle with the most exquisite finish. He attenuates them into the utmost degree of trembling softness. But we may complain, in spite of the delicacy and brilliancy of the execution, of a want of strength and solidity. The author of The Pleasures of Hope, with a richer and deeper vein of thought and imagination, works it out into figures of equal grace and dazzling beauty, avoiding on the one hand the tinsel of flimsy affectation, and on the other the vices of a rude and barbarous negligence. His Pegasus is not a rough, skittish colt, running wild among the mountains, covered with burdocks and thistles, nor a tame, sleek pad, unable to get out of the same ambling pace, but a beautiful manege horse, full of life and spirit in itself and subject to the complete control of the rider. Mr. Campbell gives scope to his feelings and his fancy, and embodies them in a noble and naturally interesting subject, and he at the same time conceives himself called upon, in these days of critical nicety, to pay the exactest attention to the expression of each thought, and to modulate each line into the most faultless harmony. The character of his mind is a lofty and self-scrutinising ambition that strives to reconcile the integrity of general design with the perfect elaboration of each component part that aims at striking effect but is jealous of the means by which this is to be produced. Our poet is not averse to popularity. Nay, he is tremblingly alive to it. But self-respect is the primary law the indispensable condition on which it must be obtained. We should dread to point out, even if we could, a false concord, a mixed metaphor, an imperfect rhyme in any of Mr. Campbell's productions, for we think that all his fame would hardly compensate to him for the discovery. He seeks for perfection, and nothing evidently short of it can satisfy his mind. He is a high finisher in poetry, whose every work must bear inspection, whose slightest touch is precious. Not a coarse dauber who is contented to impose on public wonder and credulity by some huge, ill-executed design, or who endeavours to wear out patience and opposition together by a load of lumbering, feeble, awkward, improgressive lines. On the contrary, Mr. Campbell labours to lend every grace of execution to his subject, while he borrows his ardour and inspiration from it, 
and to deserve the laurels he has earned by true genius and by true pains. There is an apparent consciousness of this in most of his writings. He has attained to great excellence by aiming at the greatest, by a cautious and yet daring selection of topics, and by studiously, and with a religious horror, avoiding all those faults which arise from grossness, vulgarity, haste, and disregard of public opinion. He seizes on the highest point of eminence, and strives to keep it to himself. He snatches a grace beyond the reach of art, and will not let it go. He steeps a single thought or image, so deep in the Tyrian dyes of a gorgeous imagination, that it throws its lustre over a whole page, everywhere vivid ideal forms hover, in intense conception, over the poet's verse, which ascends, like the aloe, to the clouds, with pure flowers at its top. Or to take a humbler comparison, the pride of genius must sometimes stoop to the lowliness of criticism, Mr. Campbell's poetry often reminds us of the purple gilly-flower, both for its colour and its scent, its glowing warmth, its rich, languid, sullen hue. Yet sweeter than the lids of Juno's eyes or Cytheria's breath. There are those who complain of the little that Mr. Campbell has done in poetry, and who seem to insinuate that he is deterred by his own reputation from making any further or higher attempts. But after having produced two poems that have gone to the heart of a nation, and are gifts to a world, he may surely linger out the rest of his life in a dream of immortality. There are moments in our lives so exquisite that all that remains of them afterwards seems useless and barren, and there are lines and stanzas in our author's early writings in which he may be thought to have exhausted all the sweetness and all the essence of poetry, so that nothing farther was left to his efforts or his ambition. Happy is it for those few and fortunate worshippers of the muse, not a subject of grudging or envy to others, who already enjoy in their lifetime a foretaste of their future fame, who see their names accompanying them like a cloud of glory from youth to age, and by the vision splendid are on their way attended. And who know that they have built a shrine for the thoughts and feelings that were most dear to them in the minds and memories of other men, till the language which they lisped in childhood is forgotten, or the human heart shall beat no more. The pleasures of hope alone would not have called forth these remarks from us, but there are passages in the Gertrude of Wyoming of so rare and riper beauty that they challenge as they exceed all praise. Such, for instance, is the following peerless description of Gertrude's childhood. A loved bequest, and I may half impart to those that feel the strong paternal tie, how like a new existence in his heart that living flower uprose beneath his eye, dear as she was, from cherub infancy, from hours when she would round his garden play, to time when, as the ripening years went by, her lovely mind could culture well repay, and more engaging grew from pleasing day to day. 
I may not paint those thousand infant charms, unconscious fascination, undesigned, the orison repeated in his arms for God to bless her sire and all mankind, the book, the bosom on his knee reclined, or how sweet fairy lore he heard her con, the playmate ere the teacher of her mind, all unaccompanied else her years had gone, till now in Gertrude's eyes their ninth blue summer shone. And summer was the tide and sweet the hour, when sire and daughter saw, with fleet descent, an Indian from his bark approach their bower, of buskined limb and swarthy lineament, the red wild feathers on his brow were blent, and bracelets bound the arm that helped to light a boy who seemed, as he beside him went, of Christian vesture and complexion bright, led by his dusty guide, like morning brought by night. In the foregoing stanzas we particularly admire the line, Till now in Gertrude's eyes their ninth blue summer shone. It appears to us like the ecstatic union of natural beauty and poetic fancy, and in its playful sublimity resembles the azure canopy mirrored in the smiling waters, bright, liquid, serene, heavenly. A great outcry, we know, has prevailed for some time past against poetic diction and affected conceits, and, to a certain degree, we go along with it. But this must not prevent us from feeling the thrill of pleasure when we see beauty linked to beauty, like kindred flame to flame, or from applauding the voluptuous fancy that raises and adorns the fairy fabric of thought that nature has begun. Pleasure is scattered in stray gifts o'er the earth. Beauty streaks the famous poet's page in occasional lines of inconceivable brightness. And wherever this is the case, no splenetic censures or jealous leer malign, no th idle theories or cold indifference should hinder us from greeting it with rapture. There are other parts of this poem equally delightful, in which there is a light startling as the red bird's wing, a perfume like that of the magnolia, a music like the murmuring of pathless woods or of the everlasting ocean. We conceive, however, that Mr. Campbell excels chiefly in sentiment and imagery. The story moves slow and is mechanically conducted, and rather resembles a Scotch canal carried over lengthened aqueducts and with a number of locks in it than one of those rivers that sweep in their majestic course, broad and full, over transatlantic plains and lose themselves in rolling gulfs or thunder down lofty precipices. But in the centre, the inmost recesses of our poet's heart, the pearly dew of sensibility is distilled and collects, like the diamond in the mine, and the structure of his fame rests on the crystal columns of a polished imagination. We prefer the Gertrude to the pleasures of hope, because, with perhaps less brilliancy, there is more of tenderness and natural imagery in the former. In the pleasures of hope, Mr. Campbell had not completely emancipated himself from the trammels of the more artificial style of poetry, from epigram, and antithesis and hyperbole. The best line in it, in which earthly joys are said to be, 
like angels' visits, few and far between, is a borrowed one. Footnote A. Like angels' visits, short and far between. Blair's Grave. But in the Gertrude of Wyoming, we perceive a softness coming over the heart of the author, and the scales and crust of formality that fence in his couplets and give them a somewhat glittering and rigid appearance fall off and he has succeeded in engrafting the wild and more expansive interest of the romantic school of poetry on classic elegance and precision after the poem we have just named mr campbell's songs are the happiest efforts of his muse breathing freshness blushing like the morn they seem like clustering roses to weave a chaplet for love and liberty or their bleeding words gush out in mournful and hurried succession like ruddy drops that visit the sad heart of thoughtful humanity the battle of hohenlinden is of all modern compositions the most lyrical in spirit and in sound to justify this encomium we need only recall the lines to the reader's memory on linden when the sun was low all bloodless lay the untrodden snow and dark as winter was the flow of isa rolling rapidly but linden saw another sight when the drum beat at dead of night commanding fires of death to light the darkness of her scenery by torch and trumpet fast arrayed each horseman drew his battle blade and furious every charger neighed to join the dreadful revelry then shook the hills with thunder riven then rushed the steed to battle driven and louder than the bolts of heaven far flashed the red artillery but redder yet that light shall glow on linden's hills of stained snow and bloodier yet the torrent flow of isa rolling rapidly tis morn but scarce yon level sun can pierce the war clouds rolling dun where furious frank and fiery hun shout in their sulphurous canopy footnote b is not this word which occurs in the last line but one as well as before an instance of that repetition which we so often meet with in the most correct and elegant writers the combat deepens on ye brave who rush to glory or the grave wave munich all thy banners wave and charge with all thy chivalry few few shall part where many meet the snow shall be their winding sheet, and every turf beneath their feet shall be a soldier's sepulchre. Mr. Campbell's prose criticisms on contemporary and other poets, which have appeared in the new monthly magazine, are in a style at once chaste, temperate, guarded, and just. Mr. Crabbe presents an entire contrast to Mr. Campbell. The one is the most ambitious and aspiring of living poets, the other the most humble and prosaic, if the poetry of the one is like the arch of the rainbow, spanning and adorning the earth, that of the other is like a dull, leaden cloud hanging over it. Mr. Crabbe's style might be cited as an answer to Audrey's question, is poetry a true thing? There are here no ornaments, no flights of fancy, no illusions of sentiment, no tinsel of words. His song is one sad reality, one unraised, unvaried note of unavailing woe. 
literal fidelity serves him in the place of invention. He assumes importance by a number of petty details. He rivets attention by being tedious. He not only deals in incessant matters of fact, but in matters of fact of the most familiar, the least animating, and the most unpleasant kind. But he relies for the effect of novelty on the microscopic minuteness with which he dissects the most trivial objects, and for the interest he excites on the unshrinking determination with which he handles the most painful. His poetry has an official and professional air. He is called into cases of difficult births, of fractured limbs, or breaches of the peace, and makes out a parochial list of accidents and offences. He takes the most trite, the most gross and obvious and revolting part of nature for the subject of his elaborate descriptions, but it is nature still, and nature is a great and mighty goddess. It is well for the reverend author that it is so. Individuality is, in his theory, the only definition of poetry. Whatever is, he hitches into rhyme. Whoever makes an exact image of anything on the earth, however deformed or insignificant, according to him, must succeed and he himself has succeeded. Mr. Crabbe is one of the most popular and admired of our living authors. That he is so can be accounted for on no other principle than the strong ties that bind us to the world about us, and our involuntary yearnings after whatever in any manner powerfully and directly reminds us of it. His muse is not one of the daughters of memory, but the old toothless mumbling dame herself, doling out the gossip and scandal of the neighbourhood, recounting totidum verbis et literis, what happens in every place of the kingdom, every hour in the year, and fastening always on the worst as the most palatable morsels. But she is a circumstantial old lady, communicative, scrupulous, leaving nothing to the imagination, harping on the smallest grievances. A village oracle and critic, most veritable, most identical, bringing us acquainted with persons and things just as they chanced to exist, and giving us a local interest in all she knows and tells. Mr. Crabbe's helicon is choked up with weeds and corruption. It reflects no light from heaven, it emits no cheerful sound, no flowers of love, of hope or joy spring up near it, or they bloom only to wither in a moment. Our poet's verse does not put a spirit of youth in everything, but a spirit of fear, despondency and decay. It is not an electric spark to kindle or expand, but acts like the torpedo's touch to deaden or contract. It lends no dazzling tints to fancy, it aids no soothing feelings in the heart, it gladdens no prospect, it stirs no wish. In its view, the current of life runs slow, dull, cold, dispirited, half underground, muddy and clogged with all creeping things. The world is one vast infirmary. The hill of Parnassus is a penitentiary, of which our author is the overseer. To read him is a penance, yet we read on. 
Mr. Crabbe, it must be confessed, is a repulsive writer. He contrives to turn diseases to commodities and makes a virtue of necessity. He puts us out of conceit with this world, which perhaps a severe divine should do, yet does not, as a charitable divine ought, point to another. His morbid feelings droop and cling to the earth, grovel where they should soar, and throw a dead weight on every aspiration of the soul after the good or beautiful. By degrees we submit, and are reconciled to our fate, like patients to the physician, or prisoners in the condemned cell. We can only explain this by saying, as we said before, that Mr. Crabb gives us one part of nature, the mean, the little, the disgusting, the distressing, that he does this thoroughly and like a master, and we forgive all the rest. Mr. Crabbe's first poems were published so long ago as the year 1782, and received the approbation of Dr. Johnson only a little before he died. This was a testimony from an enemy, for Dr. Johnson was not an admirer of the simple in style or minute in description. Still, he was an acute, strong-minded man, and could see truth when it was presented to him, even through the mist of his prejudices and his foibles. There was something in Mr. Crabbe's intricate points that did not, after all, so ill accord with the doctor's purblind vision, and he knew quite well enough of the petty ills of life to judge of the merit of our poet's descriptions, though he himself chose to slur them over in high-sounding dogmas or general invectives. Mr. Crabbe's earliest poem of The Village was recommended to the notice of Dr. Johnson by Sir Joshua Reynolds, and we cannot help thinking that a taste for that sort of poetry, which leans for support on the truth and fidelity of its imitations of nature, began to display itself much about that time, and, in a good measure, in consequence of the direction of the public taste to the subject of painting. Book learning, the accumulation of wordy commonplaces, the gaudy pretensions of poetical fiction, had enfeebled and perverted our eye for nature. The study of the fine arts, which came into fashion about forty years ago, and was then first considered as a polite accomplishment, would tend imperceptibly to restore it. Painting is essentially an imitative art. It cannot subsist for a moment on empty generalities. The critic, therefore, who had been used to this sort of substantial entertainment, would be disposed to read poetry with the eye of a connoisseur, would be little captivated with smooth, polished, unmeaning periods, and would turn with double eagerness and relish to the force and precision of individual details, transferred, as it were, to the page from the canvas. Thus an admirer of Teniere or Hobima might think little of the pastoral sketches of Pope or Goldsmith, even Thompson describes not so much the naked object as what he sees in his mind's eye, surrounded and glowing with the mild, bland, genial vapours of his brain. But the adept in Dutch interiors, hovels and pigsties must find in Mr. Crabbe a man after his own heart. He is the very thing itself. He paints in words instead of colours. 
there is no other difference. As Mr. Crabbe is not a painter, only because he does not use a brush and colours, so he is for the most part a poet, only because he writes in lines of ten syllables. All the rest might be found in a newspaper, an old magazine, or a county register. Our author is himself a little jealous of the prudish fidelity of his homely muse, and tries to justify himself by precedence. He brings as a parallel instance of merely literal description Pope's lines on the gay Duke of Buckingham, beginning, In the worst inn's worst room see Villiers lies. But surely nothing can be more dissimilar. Pope describes what is striking. Crabbe would have described merely what was there. The objects in Pope stand out to the fancy from the mixture of the mean with the gaudy, from the contrast of the scene and the character. There is an appeal to the imagination. You see what is passing in a poetical point of view. In Crabbe there is no foil, no contrast, no impulse given to the mind. It is all on a level and of a piece. In fact, there is so little connection between the subject matter of Mr. Crabbe's lines and the ornament of rhyme which is tacked to them, that many of his verses read like serious burlesque, and the parodies which have been made upon them are hardly so quaint as the originals. Mr. Crabbe's great fault is certainly that he is a sickly, a querulous, a uniformly dissatisfied poet. He sings the country, and he sings it in a pitiful tone. He chooses this subject only to take the charm out of it, and to dispel the illusion, the glory, and the dream, which had hovered over it in golden verse, from Theocritus to Cowper. He sets out with a professing to overturn the theory which had hallowed a shepherd's life, and made the names of grove and valley music to our ears, in order to give us truth in its stead. But why not lay aside the fool's cap and bells at once? Why not insist on the unwelcome reality in plain prose? If our author is a poet, why trouble himself with statistics? If he is a statistic writer, why set his ill news to harsh and grating verse? The philosopher in painting the dark side of human nature may have reason on his side, and a moral lesson or remedy in view. The tragic poet, who shows the sad vicissitudes of things and the disappointments of the passions, at least strengthens our yearnings after imaginary good, and lends wings to our desires, by which we, at one bound high overleap all bound, of actual suffering. But Mr. Crabbe does neither. He gives us discoloured paintings of life, helpless, repining, unprofitable, unedifying distress. He is not a philosopher, but a sophist, a misanthrope in verse, a namby-pamby Mandeville, a Malthus turned metrical romancer. He professes historical fidelity, but his vein is not dramatic, nor does he give us the pros and cons of that versatile gypsy nature. He does not indulge his fancy, or sympathise with us, or tell us how the poor feel, but how he should feel in their situation, which we do not want to know. He does not weave the web of their lives of a mingled yarn, good and ill together, 
but clothes them all in the same dingy linsey woolsey or tinges them with a green and yellow melancholy he blocks out all possibility of good cancels the hope or even the wish for it as a weakness checkmates to tyrus and virgil at the game of pastoral cross-purposes disables all his adversaries white pieces and leaves none but black ones on the board the situation of a country clergyman is not necessarily favourable to the cultivation of the muse he is set down perhaps as he thinks in a small curacy for life and he takes his revenge by imprisoning the reader's imagination in luckless verse shut out from social converse from learned colleges and halls where he passed his youth he has no cordial fellow-feeling with the unlettered manners of the village or the borough and he describes his neighbours as more uncomfortable and discontented than himself all this while he dedicates successive volumes to rising generations of noble patrons and while he desolates a line of coast with sterile blighting lines the only leaf of his books where honour beauty worth or pleasure bloom is that inscribed to the rutland family we might adduce instances of what we have said from every page of his works let one suffice thus by himself compelled to live each day to wait for certain hours the tides delay at the same times the same dull views to see the bounding marsh-bank and the blighted tree the water only when the tides were high when low the mud half covered and half dry the sunburnt tar that blisters on the planks and bankside stakes in their uneven ranks heaps of entangled weeds that slowly float as the tide rolls by the impeded boat when tides were neap and in the sultry day through the tall bounding mud-banks made their way which on each side rose swelling and below the dark warm flood ran silently and slow there anchoring peter chose from man to hide there hang his head and view the lazy tide in its hot slimy channel slowly glide where the small eels that left the deeper way for the warm shore within the shallows play where gaping mussels left upon the mud slope their slow passage to the fallen flood here dull and hopeless he'd lie down and trace how sidelong crabs had crawled their crooked race or sadly listen to the tuneless cry of fishing gull or clanging golden eye what time the sea-birds to the marsh would come and the loud bitten from the bulrush home gave from the salt ditch-side the bellowing boom he nursed the feelings these dull scenes produce and loved to stop beside the opening sluice where the small stream confined in narrow bound ran with a dull unvaried saddening sound where all presented to the eye or ear oppressed the soul with misery grief and fear this is an exact facsimile of some of the most unlovely parts of the creation indeed the whole of mr crabbe's borough from which the above passage is taken is done so to the life that it seems almost like some sea monster crawled out of the neighbouring slime and harbouring a breed of strange vermin with a strong local scent of tar and bilge water 
Mr. Crabbe's tales are more readable than his poems, but in proportion as the interest increases, they become more oppressive. They turn, one and all, upon the same sort of teasing, helpless, mechanical, unimaginative distress, and though it is not easy to lay them down, you never wish to take them up again. Still, in this way, they are highly finished, striking, and original portraits, worked out with an eye to nature, and an intimate knowledge of the small and intricate folds of the human heart. Some of the best are the Confident, the story of Silly Shaw, the young poet, the painter. The episode of Phoebe Dawson in The Village is one of the most tender and pensive, and the character of the Methodist parson who persecutes the sailor's widow with his godly, selfish love is one of the most profound. In a word, if Mr. Crabbe's writings do not add greatly to the store of entertaining and delightful fiction, yet they will remain as a thorn in the side of poetry, perhaps for a century to come. End of chapter 8